0: want to ditch feature dumping build trust and earn the opportunity to become your prospects trusted guide then say hello to the influential communicator newsletter now listen my friend my intention is clear because with one actionable weekly email keyword actionable my goal is to transform you into a captivating storyteller communicator and presenter so if this is a bit of you then head on down to www.theinfluentialcommunicator.com to register now and by the way if you do sign up know that you'll also receive my free guide on how to craft a punchy and high converting elevator story i'll see you on the other side Welcome to the Influential Communicator Podcast, where my mission is to help B2B salespeople sell more by becoming authentic storytellers and impactful communicators without suppressing who they truly are or their values. I'm your host, Ravi Rajani, and without further wait, let's get into it. Okay, people, what do you get when you combine an artist? with a musician, with an improv performer, and with somebody with over two decades of sales experience. You get a unicorn, people, a.k.a. Christina Brady. Now, MetLife, Groupon, and Glassdoor are just some of the companies that she's graced her sales leadership and actual selling skills with. And today, she's the SVP of sales over at Speckit and is the host of... Of the Taking the Lead podcast. And for this week's episode, I wanted to dig deep on a topic that I know Christina's passionate about, but I also know we haven't touched upon intentionally inside of the show just yet. And that topic is five ugly ways to spot if you're working for a toxic sales leader. Christina, welcome to the show, my friend. What's good?
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's This is a topic that is also really, really close to my heart, and I'm honored to be the one to talk about it with you.
0: Well, listen, my friend, speaking of toxic, there is nothing, nothing toxic about your new profile photo on LinkedIn and branding. I mean, it's so cool how literally I find like branding really tells people a story about that human and your energy just leaps off the screen now on LinkedIn. Not that it didn't before, but I feel this new energy.
1: Thank you so much. I'm trying really hard to embrace me and a little bit of the past that you talked about. I'm, I'm an artist and I've been a performer and I come from a family of artists and performers. And now I'm in this very corporate world, you know, where, you know, you sometimes feel like you have to button up and you can't show all of your color and all of your sparkle. And I'm, I'm trying really slowly to, to, break that and, and do a good merge of this sort of colorful, sparkly person that I like to be, but then also that element of professionalism. So maybe I'm trying to redefine it in some way, but I'm, I'm glad it's working.
0: <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I would say this is the first interaction that we've had in a real sense, but through LinkedIn, I would say one thing that I've noticed about you. And one thing I would say is one of your superpowers is being able to show up unapologetically self-expressed and not suffocate your true opinion. But it's funny. I find the things that other people tell us are our superpowers. It's often the things that we have or still struggle with deeply. Would you agree or
1: not? 100%. And I think it's because what comes across as your superpower is usually the thing that you're most passionate about, but then you're also the most worried that it's going to come across incorrectly or you're going to do it wrong. It's also the thing that's closest to a little bit of your personality and who you are. So your identity versus the role that you're playing. So that aligns to who I am and the experiences that I've had and who I want to be and show up as in the lives of every person that I interact with. But that's you have to be so careful and so caring and do that the right way. And so you're, ab- you're absolutely right. This is one area where I'm like, oh, I feel like I'm screwing it up all the time, but it means so much to me that I'm always working on it and always looking to get better.
0: Well, speaking of experiences and aligning your past and connecting the dots with the person that you want to become, what I'm curious about is, What's one thing that we need to know more about in terms of your story to get a better context on who you are today? I'm talking about like that one little thing that maybe not many people know that would give us more context on Christina Brady today. Uh,
1: I don't know how many people know this. Probably, probably actually a good number just because I try to be really open with my story. But I mentioned I, I grew up with um, two parents who were divorced, but both were really, really notable musicians and artists in their space. And my mom was the pianist of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and my dad was a world-renowned opera singer. And so there were these two really, really, I know, big, notable, you know, and I did all of these these arts and things growing up. And then as luck would have it, my my mom passed away when I was 20. My dad passed away when I was 21. And both as artists that didn't have things like health insurance and, and benefits and retirement savings. Um, me and my three sisters wound up, so this was around 2007 during the last big recession. And when my parents passed away and they had no assets and they had no money and they had no estate and neither one of them had wills because they were both really young, The bank foreclosed on our house. All of my belongings were sold in an estate sale to try to pay off their debt from uh, medical care, even though they were divorced from each other. I wound up spending months effectively homeless. I was in college and I was couch surfing. I slept at train stations a few times. I lost absolutely everything. So I I have nothing of my mother's. I have nothing from my childhood. And I just remember thinking to myself, one, life is so short and we don't know how much time we have. And I think about every incredible moment in my life where I still long for my mom to be there and my dad to be there. And I remember the impact that they made on the lives of people while they were here through their art and who they were. And then I said to myself, look, for the time that I'm here, I'm gonna try to make the best of every single day. And if I'm gonna take up somebody's time, and we don't know how much time we have as people, right? Like today could be the very last day. And if you went out to lunch with me during your last time on the earth, man, I want that to be worth it. I wanna be worth taking that time. I wanna be a person that you wouldn't look back and say, man, I hate that I spent the little bit of time that I had left there where I could have been anywhere else. So how do I show up? And who do I show up with? And what does honesty look like and caring really, really look like? And so it's becoming a person and a figure in every life that I meet where if I'm gonna take your time, I want it to be, I want it to mean something because I've seen what happens when it's taken away so soon. I've been a victim of that. And I'm, I have it behind me on the wall here. It says, make it mean something, right? We have hard things that happen to us. Make it mean something. So I don't know if that was a little thing, but that's, that's a lot of context into why I am the way I am.
0: (laughs) Well, firstly, I'm so sorry for your loss. I had no idea about that part of your story and what's actually really interesting. And I don't know if there's a correlation, but you started MetLife in 2008. So was there a part of you when that occurred, which said, okay, I love being an artist, but also simultaneously, I want to have the things that my parents didn't have in place for my kids and my family. So what was that Identity shift that needed to occur for you to enter corporate? Because I, I can imagine that being super challenging.
1: Yeah, it was a hard nut to chew on because prior to that, so I was going to Columbia College in Chicago. I was in the theater conservatory there and I was performing um, also at an Improv Olympic and Second City in Chicago. So I My dream at that time, prior to 2007 and 2008, was I wanted to be on a sitcom like that level of just consistent character. It was like a dream. I was like, I want to be on a sitcom. I want to have like that kind of character because I love dramedy, right? Where you're you're actually (laughs) acting, but you can also make people laugh a little bit. Like it's my entire personality. is like get really serious and then say something a little off color, and people are like, "Wait, was that funny?" Right? Like, so that's that's my jam. I had a little sister to take care of who at the time was 15, 16 years old. She was still in high school and she had nothing. And I was all set to move to LA with a friend of mine. We had gotten an agent down there and I was gonna go and make that dream happen. And then when all of this went down, I said, okay, not only is this not a great time for me to just take off and leave, but I have responsibilities here. I can't pay for things the way that I needed to. And I have
0: Mm.
1: have, have family who needs help and needs support and needs stability. And so instead of going down that path, I said, "Okay, I I need to make money to support myself. I can't be couch surfing. I can't be sleeping at train stations. I can't have nothing to my name. I, I have to do something else. And right around then was when a lot of the insurance companies, because of what was happening with AIG, were massively going after recent college grads. saying like, here's a great deal for you. We will pay you no base salary or no guaranteed income whatsoever. You take a couple tests, you can sell people insurance and then we'll pay you. What do you think? And I was like, that sounds great. I had no idea. I was like, I can take some tests. Let's do it. So I wound up getting all of my testing. I got all of my certifications, all of my licenses to sell insurance and, um, annuities. And I had like my six, my seven, my 63, anybody who's been in financial services, I just made you sweat a little bit because those are real scary. Um, but I got all of those. And then, I mean, I was hired and I did really, really well. And I sold a ton. I learned how to talk to people. I learned how to sell. I learned how to make a lot of money and have the motivation of nothing is guaranteed. And that kind of, it changed the entire trajectory of where I wound up going, but I was able to get myself an apartment and I was able to afford having my sister move in with me and getting her into college and realizing that I could make it work. So I just taught myself how to be an adult and then took it from there. Well
0: it sounds as though from what I'm hearing family is super important to you taking care of loved ones as well as being able to not stifle that creativity and if you've got a lack of money or cash flow you know you're not you, you're operating daily with a chaotic nervous system and everything's in fight or flight you can't really breathe you know what I'm saying and you know what's funny I'm not surprised that you crushed it because you're a very articulate communicator and everything you did in the world of theater and performance I bet served you so well in the sales world. What's one thing that gave you an unfair advantage when you first started at MetLife because of your performing background?
1: Improv. I cannot yeah. say it enough, but every salesperson needs to take improv. I even lead corporate improv workshops for companies now because of it. Really? Let's ability- Yeah. Yeah, the ability to think on your feet, right? The ability to not be intimidated by not knowing where the conversation is going to go. The whole idea of improv is how do you take what is a no and turn that into a yes and, and it's not letting the no get to you, right? So when I would call people in the middle of dinner and be like, hi, let's talk about your own mortality. Let's go over your whole life insurance policy. And they'd be like, "You know, blow off and hang up on me. I'd be like, well, okay, next one, right? It's like, I would just be like, I'm just gonna keep hunting through these and I don't really care if they hang up on me because eventually someone's gonna talk to me and then when they do, it's on, right? Like, how do I figure out their personality? How do I figure out, like, how do I mirror the way that they communicate? How do I make it comfortable for them, right? How do I get them riffing off of me? You're just thinking about how do I communicate and get something going here versus I'm gonna call you and try to sell you something. For me, it would become about, I'm going to get you talking to me. I'm going to get you feeling comfortable. I'm going to ask you good questions. And before you know it, you're inviting me over to go through all of your policies, right? Like that was kind of my tactic for how I was going to get it done.
0: That's really funny. That's so cool. That's so cool. And I always say this, whether it's acting lessons, improv, they should include that in onboarding programs for sales teams, right? I just don't get why we're not taught public speaking, storytelling, all this stage presence style skills early on. And then delivering that presentation to the C-suite becomes a little bit less tricky.
1: We got it. Right? That's exactly it.
0: You know what I'm talking oh, about.
1: I'm like floating out of my seat. I'm so excited right now. I'm like, yes, say that, <laughs> <more than that." laughs>
0: we need more of that. We need more of that, my friend. But listen, speaking of insurance policies, one thing I think many sellers often don't have in an insurance policy is often a great leader right? to A great leader to back them when their backs are against the walls, to invest in them when things aren't going great. And often, I don't even know if that's a good analogy, but we'll run with it. But often what ends up happening is you can, as a seller, get used to toxicity inside an organization and from a leader, and you can feel gaslit and toxic becomes the new normal. And before you know it, you're a shell of who you were before which is why i wanted to talk to you about different ways to spot that negativity from an organization or from your sales leader before it's too late so you can grab another insurance policy which is a leader who does want you to win so this is all stemming from a really dope post that you put out a week ago right which was outlining how distrust can really occur in different organizations, how it's broken, how it's formed, and all of that good stuff. But you gave your community five key red flags to watch out for, right? And I'd love to dig deeper into them just now. So the first one was you slowly start to doubt yourself. It really happens, maybe on a subconscious level at the start, and before you know it, it's wreaking havoc in your life personally and professionally. So talk to that for a second. What do you mean by that?
1: So that first step, it's it's the uncertainty and the doubt, right? It's where things at the organization start to happen really consistently, but they're small, right? They're little paper cuts where, well, we were told one thing, And then something else happened and nobody acknowledged it. Well, that feels kind of strange. Or maybe it's a weird comment in a meeting where you're like, oh, I don't really love how that felt, but maybe I'll ignore that. Or, hey, we told you this was going to happen with either your compensation or your book of business or a project that you have or a promotion guideline. And then it's kind of weird, like something else sort of happened or an employee departed the organization and we told you one thing happened. But then you think, well, it kind of feels like something else happened there, right? So there's this consistent drip that it doesn't stop of uncertainty and doubt and dishonesty that is coming from either one person in leadership or if you're in a really bad situation multiple where it seems like the culture is opaque hidden and disguised as transparency but you just you kind of have this feeling right i tell people like all of us have that gut feeling where we go Something like something about that didn't quite feel right, but I can't put my finger on it, right? So, when I'm in a one on one with my leader, and they're like, How is everything? You've got this little thing in the back of your mind, but you don't know how to vocalize it, you don't know how to mention it. Or when you say it out loud to yourself, you're like, I'm being silly. I like, clearly, there's nothing wrong. I'm just being silly, I'm being oversensitive. I have baggage from elsewhere, I'm going to ignore that. And then, multiple times a week, you're finding yourself saying, I'm going to ignore that, but nothing feels really big yet. It's just this really kind of slow burn of these little moments of, we'll call them distrust, that just kind of makes you go, there's something here, but I can't put my finger on it. And then that persists long enough before you get into sort of that stage two.
0: Christina, there was one thing I remember I struggled with when I first entered the world of sales, which was the belief that everybody wants me to win everybody. And everybody wants the best for me. And everybody's going to treat me with the same intention that I have. And that's just not what I have for others. And that's just not the case. And often what can happen is you feel scared of speaking up, but you also end up questioning yourself as to, no, I'm just being silly. It's not a big deal. And then it occurs again and again, these moments of distrust. What's your advice for somebody who's early on in their sales career who is experiencing these moments but doesn't know how to decipher whether it's them just overreacting or if there's something to actually be concerned about
1: first thing i would say is start keeping track of every moment that hits you and even if you can't identify what that is if you're starting to have these moments of that didn't quite feel right write it Mm. down write down what triggered that, write down when it was, and just try to keep an open notebook full of those things. And then try to hmm. bucket them into themes, right? Because like, is the theme compensation? Is the theme the feedback that I'm getting from my boss? Is the theme that I feel like there's inappropriate remarks that are consistently made about me or my work? Is the theme that I'm consistently talked over or not listened to? Is the theme that I feel like I might be getting gaslit in these little areas here and there, right? Right where are the themes? And you start to write them down and you start to write down the frequency. And if there is something happening, you will see a pattern because that's what this looks like. And when you start to see the pattern, that's when you can trust yourself that what you're picking up on is actually there. Because the first time you feel it, you go, Ooh, I kind of felt a little bit strange. Okay. Maybe we can write that off the second time, the third time, the fourth time, right? That's you giving the company more grace or that leader more grace than they deserve, right? Sometimes we give the people who hurt us the most the most grace and kindness, right? We're like, no, 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 they couldn't, po- no, 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 they couldn't possibly. I'm sure, I'm sure they meant no harm. I'm sure they didn't mean it like that. I'm sure that they didn't have bad intent, right? We do that. We forgive them because we couldn't possibly accept the fact that this leader would do something like they're appearing to actually do. So we find all the ways to forgive it until we can't anymore.
0: As they say, there's a difference between a mistake. And a choice, you know, once it's a mistake and then it becomes a choice. So I really, really value what you just mentioned there. And I think that's going to help a lot of people, especially in a time like this, when unethical behavior is arguably rife, because it's easy to be a great human when things are going great. But you learn a lot about a human being when things are.
1: And when people are trying to show you who they are, let them, Yeah. like let them, you know, like don't. You know, there's this element of when people are showing you bad behavior or showing you that they are distrustful or sharing with you that they are egotistical or that they want to take your ideas, that they don't see your brilliance. All these things happen in small little paper cuts and we forgive and we forgive. Let, Let them, right? Let them show you who they are. People will eventually. We can't hide who we are from the people we interact with every day for very long. Eventually. The real you and your real intentions come out and it's usually in moments of extreme joy, right? Any extreme emotion brings out the realness in people. So when times are really tough, you see people for who they really are. When times are really, really good, you see people for who they are. Like when we're feeling anxiety, you see people for where they really are, right? It's easy for me to kind of put on a little bit of a front and maybe show some empty empathy before things get really, really bad and you realize, hey, I had a whole one-on-one with you where you told me that you understood where I was coming from and you agreed that this was an issue at the organization and you said that you were going to help me and it's three months later and nothing has changed. And I actually don't think that you gave my feedback to anybody. So what was that? Were you just trying to appease me? Like you didn't give me any feedback back. And that's what happens a lot too, right? Is this idea of empty empathy over and over. No, I hear you. That sounds so hard. I totally agree. Well, let me see what I can do. And then it never leaves that room and they never do anything because they either don't know how to filter up feedback or they don't care.
0: That's powerful. I think there's maybe... Instead of the five consequences or five ugly ways, I think we can add a little bonus at the end of a script of how to approach those confrontational conversations, but we're going to get to that people. Okay. So the second interesting red flag consequence or stage is the concept of feeling high levels of suspicion. Maybe in leadership or your you know your team lead whoever it might be but high levels of suspicion. Talk to that for a second. What do you mean by that?
1: So you go from we enter into any organization with all the hope in the world, right? I just accepted this job. I just fell in love with the company, hopefully the leadership, the mission, the vision, what I've heard the culture looks like, and then I actually get in there and I'm interacting with the people in my team and I'm sort of then getting the real story of what's going on. Which you hope not only matches what you heard in the interview process, but also is so much better, right? We hope it's so much better. But then you get there in that stage one, you're like, "Oh, that felt a little weird. Like, oh, that was kind of strange. Like, oh man, that wasn't what they said it was gonna be. Or, oh man, they, they mentioned it was gonna not look like this and then it did, right? So there's these moments where it's happening to us, but it's almost surprising us, right? It's catching us off guard. Stage two is I go from this uncertainty and doubt of, hey, what's going on, to now I expect there to be issues. So when you tell me that my comp plan is going to look like X, Y, Z, I'm going to assume that there's something wrong there. I'm going to assume that there's an issue. I'm going to see you put in writing that you're going to do X, Y, Z for me in terms of my career or feedback or coaching or opportunity. But I'm going to assume that probably something about that either isn't the way it actually is or isn't going to happen the way it's going to. So I get suspicious of almost everything, right? And then I start to look around and go, man, if this is happening to me, am I the only one, right? Am I the only one that is getting a little suspicious about the things we see going on here? And that's where we say, who else is seeing this, right? And that's where that starts, right? Where multiple people are like, did that weird thing happen to you? Yeah, that weird thing. Happen to me? I wonder where the next time it's going to happen. So then you start to look at your leadership through a really, really critical lens and you don't believe everything they say at face value because they've proved to you in the past that you can't trust them at face value. Well, now I expect it. I'm not waiting for it. I expect it.
0: Uh, Two things I loved about what you just said. The first thing was get it in writing. Get it in writing. I definitely didn't do enough of that as a seller and as a sales leader get it in writing people because lip service does not uh, it's easy for people to forget that two years down the line that's point number one point number two which i loved, is the idea that words are one thing but your actions will tell people the true story sales kickoff season is coming people and i love it man i love it because it's such an exciting time as a speaker but For enablement professionals and revenue leaders, well, it can be kind of stressful, you know. And having delivered storytelling keynotes and workshops for revenue teams like NetSuite, CrunchBase and AB Tasty, I know it's not just about motivation and inspiration, but also about finding the right speaker who can educate your audience and spark a long lasting shift in behavior so hey if you are thinking about storytelling as a theme for kicking off your new fiscal year then head on down to www.theravirajani.com forward slash speaking to check out my speaker reel take a look at some of my topics and some customer stories to see if there's a fit and if there is then you can scroll down to the bottom and book an alignment call with me directly All right, let's get back to the show. So if you are saying one thing, but there's a mismatch between your words and your actions, people are truly going to end up feeling a disconnect. And then later on down the line, they're going to be like, hold up, you acted like that previously. I don't believe what you're saying because I've judged the behavior from the past. So that's super, super interesting. I love that. Once again, death by a thousand cuts, as you would say, right? So if we look at flag number three, it sounds as though we go from uncertainty to really stacking that uncertainty, which leads into questioning everything around you and really saying, hold up, is this just me? Then that can lead to crippling anxiety, whether it's on a Sunday night or before that QBR or before that one-to-one with your manager. Talk to that for a second. What's, where does that anxiety come from and what's the manifestation of that?
1: So I'm actually going to give what could feel like a real-life example and kind of quantify the three of these and then lead into kind of anxiety and jitters and where it comes from. So let's say that you're on a team and you're tasked with either coming up with ideas or presenting a project or building something brand new, right? So your leadership says, hey, we hired you because of who you are, your voice, your skill, And you have full autonomy to go build, deliver, promote this thing, right? So you go, wow, I have full autonomy. You have full autonomy. This is your baby. You go do it. I'll give you feedback. This is your baby. You go do it, right? So then you go and you do that thing. You pour hours into it. You pour your heart into it. You fall in love with the work that you've done. And you get into that room with your leaders. And you can't wait to present the product of your love and your time and your sacrifice from other things. And then you get in there and they shoot bullets through it, right? Don't like this, bad idea, can't do that, can't do that, can't do that. Tell you what, I have a better idea, we're going to do my idea, right? Now that happens the first time when you go, wow, that felt really terrible, but wow, maybe I was just really off base or maybe I didn't quite understand the prompt. There must be something wrong with me, like I totally got that wrong. I'm embarrassed, I feel shameful, right? It's that uncertainty and doubt of I felt like I had autonomy over this and then when I presented it, I almost got embarrassed by the fact that clearly somebody else in the room had a much stronger vision and they wanted to do what they wanted to do. Shoot. Right. The next time that same individual says, hey, I want you to go build this and take the lead. You've got full autonomy. Well, I'm already in stage two. Right. I'm like, yeah, you said that last time. And then I got absolutely slaughtered in that meeting. And then we wound up doing your idea anyway. So this time, I'm not gonna put as much time into it and I'm gonna expect you to tear through that and I'm gonna try to protect myself a little bit. So I'm still gonna go in there, I'm gonna do that but I'm just expecting you to go in and have a real strong opinion about it, right? So we're in stage two where then I build it but I don't put my all into it because I know likely you're gonna have an issue with what I wrote even though you told me I have full autonomy. Now, let's say that's what happens every time you take your time to present an idea or a project or initiative. Eventually, you get to stage three where when that individual says, hey, I got a project for you, you have an instant physical reaction to that. You go, oh my gosh, every time I present an idea, it's never what you're quite looking for. I don't feel like I can ask questions to quantify what you're looking for. I know you're gonna rip through it. Like if you have an idea of what you wanna do and you want me to feel like I have autonomy, I'd rather you just tell me what you want me to do and then I'll present that versus spend all of my time in an idea that's not what you want. So there's this, I can't guess or estimate what you want, but every time I put something together, it seems to be wrong. So I don't even know how to approach my job anymore right? And that's when you get into that anxiety and jitters, right? Where I'm not hopeful about the work that I'm doing. I'm not excited. I have this underlying anxiety with everything that I do and I don't know how this is going to look or how it's going to be judged. Every time an email hits your inbox that is talking about, hey, I got an idea for you. Instead of feeling excited that you get to jump in and build something, you get anxiety like, oh, what is this going to be? Is it going to derail my day? Is it negative feedback about something that I put together that I was passionate about? Oh, what is this going to be? Right. So then, that anxiety, you wind up having that feeling with either that individual or that group of leaders consistently in every single interaction. Now, what I've learned about anxiety is anxiety not only is a mental and emotional problem, it's a physical problem. When you carry anxiety with you consistently, it actually deteriorates your health. It stops you from being able to sleep, it leads to you being dehydrated. It can actually cause other physical symptoms in the body where you can get sick from feeling anxiety time and time and time again. So then you're cycling with that as well. You're also, in a sense, trying to tell yourself still at this point, is it just me? And this is where you then start to internalize it, right? And you're like, I'm clearly terrible at what I'm doing. I can't get this right. I'm awful at this job. I have no good ideas. And then that continues to cycle until you move into the next one.
0: Oh, I mean... I bet a very timely answer for so many, but it paints a vivid picture, right? It paints a vivid, vivid picture, which leads to the next flag or consequence about not feeling psychologically safe in the environment you're in and probably more on a conscious level. And you describe that as fear. So talk to that for a second.
1: So when you wind up getting into the fear environment, that is the point where there's probably no point of return. Even the individual Mm. leader or leaders at the organization, even if they were to, at this point, try to acknowledge their behavior, or maybe they got some feedback and they're like, we're going to change. I'm going to get better. You don't buy this anymore. You're in a completely fear-based environment. And you may also be experiencing a little bit of learned helplessness. So if you're not familiar with the learned helplessness experiment, It basically says that when an individual is given so many negative reinforcements at one point in time, they stop trying to escape that environment. So the actual experiment, it's a little bit dark, but we'll get into it. They basically took a dog and it was sitting on a floor, right? And the floor was divided in half. And on the half the dog was sitting in, that floor, every couple of minutes, there would be a light that would go on and then the floor would shock them. Like kind of a light shock, which I know very, I know, I know, as an animal lover, horrific, right? And there was a wall. I know there's a wall in between, a clear wall, right, in between where they were sitting and then the other side of the room. And the other side of the room, unbeknownst to the dog, was not a shocked floor. But the first couple times the dog would see the light go on, the dog would try to escape the room, right? Like I try to go over the wall, can't go over the wall. I try to jump up to avoid the shock. I try to go up on the wall so as little of my body is holding it as possible. And then every couple of minutes, the light would go on. The dog would feel the shock. And slowly, 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 the dog got to the point where it stopped trying to escape the shock. It just became inevitable that when that light goes on, I'm going to get shocked. They then lowered the wall, right? So all the dog had to do to escape the shock was just walk over to the other side of the room. And they found that when they did that, the dog still didn't move. They had learned when the light goes on, I'm going to get shocked and there's nothing I can do about it. So you're just living in this state of consistent fear, metaphorically, the light's going to go on and I'm going to get shocked and there's nothing that I can do about it. So at that point in time, you stop trying to escape and you accept the fact that I'm living in this very, very fear-based environment. And that's when you look to say, I'm either going to continue to deal with this until I get fired. I'm going to hopefully have somebody look and pull me out of the environment that I am in. My work is going to start to suffer. I can't avoid the landmines because they're absolutely everywhere. And you get people in this fear-based survival mode. look, they're not doing their best work either, right? It's not good for anybody when you're in that environment. And the other thing is the people that are in that fear-based mode, they're not going to their leadership and saying, hey, I don't really feel safe at work. I don't like working with this individual. They're a poor leader because they don't trust that their feedback is going to go anywhere because that's what they've learned. It's a learned helplessness where they are constantly at work sitting in fear all the time. It's a really, really bad place to be.
0: Oh, that study with the dog that actually hurts my heart genuinely. I mean, I was just thinking of like my dog Nelly and I was like, oh, that, oh my gosh. But you know what's funny? You see it a lot. You know, if we use that analogy with employees today, they end up feeling numb to those shocks and that that behavior becomes normalized of sitting there and just accepting it and it's it's painful to see because you can see it in somebody's face you can see it in their energy in their body language and how they're showing up which really really sucks and you know what's funny sometimes people don't armor up as you would say right which leads beautifully to the fifth flag you don't armor up Because maybe you normalized normalize that behavior or you get overly defensive. You go the other way and every little thing becomes something that you need to have a conversation about because, as you said, it's death by a thousand cuts. So talk to that for a second when you talk about armoring.
1: Yes. So the difference between the fourth stage and the fifth stage is you're right. Not everybody makes that transition at the org that they are in. So people usually will attrit the business and go somewhere else somewhere between stage three and four. Like at that point, they're like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I have to leave. And what's usually upsetting about that is they're usually not running to an opportunity. They're running away. So it means the next job they take is going to be the one that I take to get the heck out of this. This is a self-preservation tactic, right? So in those moments, it's even if you are in the worst possible situation, look out for the you one year from now, right? And you can run away and also run to try to think about what that looks like. Step outside of your situation. And if I'm going to run to something, what does it look like? And in fact, you should always have those down, right? Like before you're in the moment where it's an absolute panic, it's if I were to run to something, what would that have to look like? Because one day you might have to run away. So between this Fourth and fifth stage, right? The fourth stage is I am just in a constant state of fear. I don't believe anything that this leader is telling me. I don't, I know that they don't have my best interest at heart. And so I'm just kind of surviving day by day. And when the light goes on, I'm just accepting the fact that I'm going to get a shock until I get really tired of that. And then I go into self preservation mode. That's when armor up happens. And it says, you know what? I refuse to let myself continue to be in a working environment with this individual. So I'm going to protect myself from them. I'm going to find a way to give feedback. I'm going to go and look for another job. I'm going to start giving them feedback, right? It's almost this moment of like, you know what? I'm going to try to walk to the other side of the room because I've had enough of this. And worst case, I get shocked over there, but I'm going to give it a try, right? It's almost this feeling of I'm going to overcome. I'm going to figure something out. I'm going to start using my voice. And it's very, very difficult for people at work to start doing that because you've been taught by whoever this leader is or this group of leaders that your voice isn't heard, your voice doesn't matter, or maybe even some of your incredible ideas, they're gonna be taking credit for those, right? So you feel unseen, you feel unheard, you feel unvalidated. And yet in those moments, you armor up and you say, but I still have my voice and I'm gonna use it because at this point, I have nothing to lose other than more minutes of my life. And I'm certainly not willing to pay that price to continue to build somebody else's vision when they don't see me or care about me.
0: This is incredible because you're explaining this so vividly. And I'm sure there's been times in your sales career where some of these moments have occurred, which is why you can speak to it so, so vividly and you're nodding (laughs) your head right now. But one thing I think a lot of sellers might struggle with or anybody listening to this show is mustering up the confidence to have a, a calm conversation with leadership about how they feel and doing it in a constructive yet firm way. So, if you had to give people a quick script, you know, a thirty-second script to follow of how to approach that conversation in a very, very professional yet profound way, how how would you coach them through that? What would you tell them?
1: Uh, I love this question so much because at the end yeah. of the day. Your intent doesn't matter. What matters is how you're perceived, but that's also the magic in how you give people feedback around that. So let's say that every time you present an idea, the leader that you're presenting it to, the words they use, the tonality they have, the body language, even down to the pace of how they're speaking and what they say makes you feel like your idea is being attacked or not good enough, right? Now, their intent may not be that. Right, and there's a belief at my current company, Specket, which is phenomenal, and that is never a sign bad intent. Well, eventually, you can get to the point where, hey, I'm pretty sure your intent is bad, right? Because every single interaction, we are in the same place. But then therein lies the way that you can give feedback. So one way is, I wanted to have a conversation to you about a couple of the ways that I'm feeling, and I want to give you a few examples because I know as my leader that you care about my success and you want me to advance and do really, really well. And the way that I'm interpreting your messaging and your intent looks like X, Y, Z. And here's the reason. Is that how you're meaning me to interpret that? Or am I getting that wrong? Right? So you're giving them the, you're not saying you make me feel defensive. You're giving me bad feedback. It's I'm interpreting your intent based on the way that you communicate to be X, Y, Z. I'm interpreting your intent to say that you don't believe That I know how to do the job very, very well. I'm interpreting it that you don't think that I'm able to deliver in projects on time. I'm interpreting it that I have yet to actually get something right because you're always having to give me feedback on that. That's my interpretation, but I just want to make sure that that's actually your intent and I'm reading it the right way. And if not, I would love to hear your actual feedback so I can make sure that I'm doing the right thing, right? It's, I'm asking, am I, am I interpreting what you're giving me the right way, which gives them an opportunity to either say, oh my gosh, no, that's not at all how I want you to interpret it, which then you can say, great, the way that I interpret messaging like XYZ is going to be like this. So maybe when you and I are communicating, you can communicate like this, right? Now you can have orgs that do things like disk analysis or dope bird tests, where you can actually do some studies on communication and talk to each other about like, hey, if you're a D, you interpret messages this way. And if you're an I, you interpret messages this way. People who are disk fanatics will love that. Folks who are not have No idea what I'm talking about, but look into it. So there's things you can do as an org to help people learn how to have communication-based framework conversations. But again, it always comes down to, this is how I'm interpreting your intent. Am I getting it right? And give them an opportunity to show you who they are.
0: Mm. And as a theater kid, you'll know better than anybody that it's not just about what you say. It's about how you say it. So the delivery, I'm assuming, is everything. So there we have it, ladies and gents. Gents christina brady on the influential communicator podcast now listen my friend before we finish up the show my final question is is as you know the show is called the influential communicator so i am curious as to who does christina brady look up to as an influential communicator and why if you had to pick one just one one human you got to give it to me raw right just hit me with it
1: I am going to pick right now um, a wonderful woman. Her name is Deborah Senra. She's the VP of sales and growth at a company called 3Flow. She has a beautiful story. She's unbelievably strategic. She has a way of taking difficult communication like this and making it feel so digestible and so attainable for people who may feel themselves, for lack of a better word, victimized by their situation or their leadership in really making them feel empowered by how to communicate their way up or communicate their way out. Uh, she's wonderful at that. And she's certainly taught me so much. What's her surname, Christina? Deborah. Deborah Senra, S-E-N-R-A.
0: Senra. Okay. Never heard of her. Very, very interesting. We'll have to check out her work. I'll have to go check it out. But Christina, where can people go to check out what you're up to and also what Speckit are up to?
1: Yes. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm Christina Brady on LinkedIn, and there's a little Specky octopus next to my name. You can find out more about Speckit at speckit.co. The reason I am working there is because our mission is to maximize every minute at work allowing you to maximize every minute of your life, which if you heard my story, it's like, couldn't be more behind that mission. Um, so you could go to either of those two places to learn about me or more about what we're doing over there uh, in Octopus Land.
0: Well, there you have it, friends. Go check out Speckett and go check out Christina. And as always, if you did enjoy this episode, here's what I need you to do, man. I need you to take a screenshot of where you're listening to this right now. I need you to head on down to LinkedIn. I want you to tag Christina and myself and let us know what is one thing that deeply impacted you in today's episode. Now hit us up, let us know, we will respond. Now see you next week, same time, same place for another episode. Peace. I have a question for you, my friend. And that question is, is what would it take to have you subscribe to the Influential Communicator podcast and leave us a review on your podcast? platform of choice because i tell you what my friend my big mission is to help b2b sellers and all listeners of this show sell more by becoming influential storytellers and communicators without without suppressing their personality and disowning their value so hey the more the word gets out about this podcast the more people we can gather on this mission so if you could support me then hey That would be dope. And if not, that's dope too. Either way, I got love for you, all right? I'll see you on the other side.